Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 122. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. And hey, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 122 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Kurt Andrus, who is the business manager for one of our former guests, Mitch Dane, who shares a studio space called Sputnik Sound with another one of our former guests, Vance Powell. I brought on Kurt because it's tax time here in the U.S. Actually, as I record this, it is the day that we're supposed to be turning in our taxes. No better time than the present to talk about money, taxes, business structure for someone who is in the recording business. So Kurt's going to come on and educate us about that. Kurt Andrews coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. So as many of you know, Gearsluts.com is a major sponsor of Working Class Audio. Working Class Audio is going to be sponsoring one of the forums on Gearsluts that is called Audio Life. This particular forum really is in line with a lot of the things we talk about on Working Class Audio, work-life balance and health and stuff like that. So head on over to Gearsluts.com and, and check that out. And I think you'll find that if you want to continue these discussions about similar things that we do talk about here on the podcast, you'll find a place to do that there on Audio Life there at Gearsluts.com. So check that out. Always looking to uh, provide you with you know some ideas that you can cherry pick and use in your own workflow or business or whatever. And right now we're going to give a call to former working class audio guest Matt Wright. Matt was on WCA number sixty seven, so we're going to call up Matt and uh, see if he's got any uh, good ideas for you that you can cherry pick for yourself and and use. So let's uh, let's give that a shot right now. Hey Matt. Hey Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Great to have you back on the show. And uh, I just called to find out, you know, any new techniques or philosophies, whether it's a recording technique or a mixing technique or even uh, a philosophy or a new approach to your whole recording world uh, that, y- that you've taken on or you've been inspired by lately. Basically something that somebody could listen to and, and say, ooh, I like that. I'm going to try that idea. I don't know if there's anything new, but I've recently been really reinvesting myself into the whole philosophy of working on the source, making that everything it can be before you even put a microphone in front of it. In particular, the one new thing I tried recently is I just had a record. It was the first time where I've tuned the snare drum to the song on every song on the whole record. Wow. Yeah. And it was really fun and cool. I mean, basically, for a while now, I, I touched the drums on almost almost every drum session I do, I at least do some touch on them, touch up on them, and sometimes kind of take them back from zero and just retune everything on the kit. Totally depends on what the drummer brings in, but I just find most drummers don't know how to do it. So I can even wait for those few drummers who come in who do know how to do it for those tracks to sound really good. Or I can do it on every session, and every session the drums can sound fabulous. What technique are you using to do that in terms of, are you doing it by ear, or are you, you know, sitting there with a pitch pipe, or what are you doing? I'm a by-ear guy. So, you know, usually I take a 
couple of different tacks to getting to that point where I'm tuning the drums because you don't want to step on anybody's toes. Mm-hmm. You know, usually people are coming in for a tracking session. I ask for some reference tracks that we can listen to while we're getting set up uh, that are kind of like our calibration for the day. You know, tracks from other artists. What are you listening to? What's inspiring the sound for this project? And we'll listen to that. And then I'll go and listen to the drummer's kit. And then that usually provides like a window to start talking about how the drums themselves sound rather than talking about how I'm going to record them. Because someone is playing me, say, a bunch of drum tracks with a snappy, zingy snare and really open sounding, live sounding drums. And then I go out and listen to their kit and they've got duct tape on all the heads. They're not going to get what they want out of their drum tracks. doesn't matter what I do the potential for the drums has already been limited by the fact that they've got the garage tuning. I call that the garage tuning when they're covered with duct tape. <laughs> I like um, that. Because they're trying to take all the resonance out of the drums. The problem is with the resonance is in the garage. Instead of trying to take the garage sound out of their drums, they just needed to take their drums out of the garage and then all of a sudden they sound better. So, you know, listen to the thing first. And then I talk about, okay, you know, if I'm hearing some kind of general thing from track to track, and often if people have given me kind of coherent set of tracks to listen to, I'll hear some consistencies and like, okay, so in the drum sounds you guys, you know, are playing for me that you like, I hear high tube drums, low tune drums, uh, drums with a lot of attack, drums that are very muted, drums with a lot of decay, drums with very little decay, roomy drums, very little room, very dry drums, you know, whatever it is I hear, um, talk to them about that and say, yeah, is this what you guys are going for? And that's, yes, okay, great. Well, let's go listen to what the kit sounds like. And I talk about, you know, so what I'm hearing when I listen to this kit is drums sound like they're all tuned too high or, you know, they're not as pure a tone maybe as they could be or, you know, whatever else the problems are. And usually those are the two biggest problems with drummers who don't know how to set up the kit is they've tuned them too high and there's kind of notes and harmonics all over the place. Hmm. Part of this is a taste thing for me. I like low tune drums and I like pure toned drums. It's like the total opposite end of the spectrum from say the way someone would tune their kit for more of a traditionally jazz tuning, in which case they would tend to tune higher and they're looking for complexity. Whereas for me, for most pop music, complexity on drums is kind of not what you want. You want something that has more focused tone to it and then some harmonics on it, but not something that has like 20 different notes. Again, depending. And then low tunings are just popular again. I mean, I just hear low snares on everything now. So... What that's led me to, though, now is that as you start to simplify, go towards a pure tone for the drum and tune it lower, you start to really hear a fundamental pitch to the drum. Yes. Um, And that's not a huge issue for toms that are going to be hit maybe three times in the whole song. It's a big issue if this guy's going to ride on the floor tom or something. Mm -hmm. But it is an issue for that drum that you're hitting on beats two and four for the whole song. (laughs) <laughs> because if that drum, if the snare drum has a low pitch and has a focused pitch to it, if it's say a half step or a whole step off of being something that really fits in the home key of the song, then it really sticks out. And it's hard to notice sometimes why it sticks out, but sometimes you'll be doing drums for a record where you say, did not retune the snare for the whole record. And on some songs, the snare sounds great. And other songs, it doesn't. And 
to me, a lot of that has to do with where that note's sitting. Or sometimes, you know, you'll have this ring or, you know, this note that comes out of the drum and it's really bothering you. And other times, other songs, it doesn't bother you because it's disappearing into the track because it's matching the pitch of the track. So I've gotten into that a lot recently, and it was, it's really fun. Makes a huge difference. Yeah, and again, depends on, you know, if, if the drum is tuned higher, you're talking about like a cracking rock snare, don't really notice it so much, because the, then the, there's more harmonics going on, um, particularly if it's not, it's muted too. You have a bunch of notes going on. The more notes there are, the, the less of an issue it is. It starts it stops having an identifiable pitch to it and just becomes kind of white noise. But as it's lower, as it's more muted and more thuddy and starts to have that more more of that note to it, I find it makes a difference. So that's that's been the the new dimension of that to me. And you know that that's advanced. I mean it's taken me till now to get to that point where I can really hear the pitch on the drum and really find the spot where it sits in the track. Even just learning how to get a drum to sound good with itself is a worthwhile skill for a producer engineer to have because, again, most of the drummers don't know how to do it. They'll come with things till muted. You know, I was talking to this guy who just tracked this drum session. He, he uh, you know, I'm like, okay, let's check out how your drums are sounding. And, you know, again, talked about the tracks we listened to. I'm like, oh, okay, it all sounds pretty high to me. And he's like, oh, but I've got moon gels. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> Moon gels are great, but they're not going to affect the pitch of the drum. The drums are too high. And, you know, the worst one for me always is kick drums. If you can just learn how to fix the tuning on a kick drum, you're going to save some sessions because so often, particularly guys who have the smaller kicks, particularly if they're a smaller kick that's deep, uh, like I get tired of 20-inch kick drums that are really deep. 20-inch kicks that are shallow are great, but the really deep ones – it's hard to get the note low enough. And if someone's cranked the heads up, then they've got a note that's like in the 200 hertz range, which is just so obscenely high for a kick and just places it in the way of everything. Bass, guitars, keyboards, everything low end is reaching down to 200 hertz. And it's just all over that. Um, So sometimes just being able to say like, oh, this kick head is too high. You know, bring this down. All of a sudden, now the kick is fat and deep and not, you know, boingy. I wasn't a fan of the trend that I think started in the '90s of the of the uh, the depth of kick drums growing, such as the eight, you know, 18-inch depth kick drums. And I find myself gravitating towards older drums that are 14 and 16 inches in depth uh, because. Number one, as a drummer, they're easier to play because you don't have to move so much air. And mm-hmm. second, they just seem to tune up quicker. And I, I always struggle with the 18-inch depth kick drums. I don't know if that's just my own personal flaw. I am, no, I am right there with you, 100%. And anytime someone brings in a modern 20-inch kick, it's less than an issue with the 22s and the 24s because then the ratio between the depth and the uh, diameter is a less problematic. But when you get those 20 by 18s, those, those are impossible to get a good note on. I mean, for me, quite literally impossible. And then every now and then, you know, I'll get to record uh, down at New Improved. They have a vintage Ludwig kit there, and the 20-inch kick is, you know, shallow. 
Easy. Easy as can be. Just I've recorded that kit. I've played on that kit. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a lovely little kit. I, I, I found it exceptionally easy to tune. I've got a drummer friend who's got a custom contemporary kit where he's got a 20. Very shallow, and it's the deepest sounding kick I've ever recorded. But I mean, it's extremely shallow. I, mean, I don't know what the actual dimension is. It has to be 14 or under. Well, this has been great, man. I just wanted to check in and uh, see what you're up to and see what uh, ideas you're bringing to the table. This is a great idea. Thanks, Matt. Okay, thank you, Matt. Cheers. All right, Matt Wright here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Like I said, you can go back and listen to Matt's full interview at WCA number 67. Listen in the archives. I like his ideas there. I like I like that approach of uh, dealing with drums in that that capacity, and I hope uh, hope that works for you. So, uh, without further ado, I think it's time to get into our main interview here with Mr. Kurt Andrus. So let's do that right now. Kurt Andrus here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and uh, it's good to see you. Like we were saying as we signed on, it's it's been at least thirty years. Uh, our history back. Uh, in New Mexico is that, uh, you know, basically I was in a band called the Sextants. You were in a band called Second Shift Parking, later Walter Ego. Second Shift Parking and the Sextants used to rehearse across the street from each other in what was known as the Ross and Rental Units, which was basically yep. a storage facility where the garage door would roll up and you'd rehearse. And that was how we did it in New Mexico in the late 80s. Because we had power. Because <laughs> we had power. That was... You, you had to go to the storage units that had power. <laughs> I haven't seen it done like that since by anybody else, but we've played on the same stages a few times over the years, over those early years, I should say. And yep. uh, and then we went our separate ways and you went to Nashville. Uh, I came to San Francisco. And strangely enough, well, through the magic of Facebook, of course, we reconnected. But then beyond that, we realized that one of your clients is actually Mitch Dane, who has been a guest on the show, who I know through Vance Powell. That's where the world becomes much smaller. And yeah, that was not, that was a trip for me too. It was kind of like, wait a minute, how do you know Vance? <laughs> how do you know Mitch? So yeah, that was kind of, that was a cool little intersection there. If you could explain uh, essentially to the audience what it is your main business is. Well, I'm Given that I work in the music industry, I get the cool title that I'm a business manager. In pretty much any other industry, I would be a bookkeeper. But my expertise being a business manager in the industry is that I've got the music industry background. My my education was a music business degree from Belmont, which which gives me a uh, a more specific focus on the ins and outs of the music industry from from the side of booking, from management, from from record company operations copyright law, you know, how does, how does the cash move in the, in the industry, in the music industry and what makes it different than working in an accounting firm or working for a cement company? I'm more familiar with how contracts are structured and how the cash moves, you know, the, the day-to-day operation of it is still, you know, for, for a studio, you, you do a gig, you get paid. You know, and it's then how do you manage that cash and make sure that the, the the businesses are in their proper their proper structure for how they they function for the the people that own them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the gist of why or what what gives me my uh, function my role in the music industry. Do you have a, a 
a big roster of clients or a small roster? Uh, I used to have a more extensive roster. I've actually been paring down a little bit um, over the past few years. Just my direction has been shifting a little bit. But um, pretty much the core has always been music industry from merchandising companies, bands. I still have a fairly um, successful band in the in the Christian music industry that just actually their first album went gold, which going gold in the record industry at this point in time is rather significant. It is. So yeah. um, studio photographers. Yeah. Uh, it just, I've, I've had a, a pretty, pretty good range of people that I've worked with. I mean, studio musicians. So Mitch gave us a little bit of an indication in his interview of what you do for him. Can you maybe uh, give us a little more detail as far as like, what is it you do for these people, for everybody on your roster? Really, a lot of it is handling the day-to-day. Uh, you know, the core of any business, if you want to start it off, is, is kind of going, okay, you're, what's your business structure? And that means as to whether or not you're going to be a sole proprietor, you're going to be a limited liability company, you're going to be an S corporation. My, my role in that is to kind of go, okay, what is your best structure? What's, and that, a lot of it, honestly, it comes down to what your liability exposure is. Because I think some people get a little bit starry-eyed when it comes to like, oh my gosh, I got to get an LLC. Well, why? You know, what is the what is the the purpose for that type of a business structure? Um, so I help them, you know, get their business structure in place, and that's like the one-time thing. You know, you you at one point make a decision as to I'm going to be a corporation. You know, for you know, Mitch is is Sputnik Sound Incorporated, and beyond that, it's it's let's make sure we get the proper banking in place. You know, what is, what type of an account do you need? What, what type of, of uh, uh, documentation is going to be necessary to get that in place? Okay. Again, one-time thing. A proper insurance is, you know, you've got, you're running a business and you got, you know, for studios, you've got your gear and that's going to be your major investment. I mean, for some studios, you got more invested in your gear than you do in your house. Making sure you got the proper, proper insurance in place for the gear, for the studio, you know, if someone comes in and trips over your threshold or trips over cords and they split their head open, you got to make sure you got your proper insurances in place that that particular occurrence is covered because your gear is at stake. Your livelihood is based on your gear. And so, you know, that's an annual basis. You kind of go through that. And then beyond that, it's really just the day to day. It's it's you know managing the deposits and the expenses and, you know, the, the income and expenses. Uh, in Mitch's particular case, you know, built a studio. So we help, you know, work up the budgets for the studio and, and the uh, execution of the, all the transactions that went into building the studio and tracking it and making sure that all of the costs were accounted for. And then, and then I stop at the point, I personally, I stop at the point of, I do everything up to federal and state taxes. I'm CPAs get paid good money to do that. They get, they have to keep up all their continuing education. I'm perfectly fine with that. So, so you, okay. So you basically handle the day to day so that when it gets handed off to the CPAs for federal and state taxes, it's done properly. It's, it's Correct. laid out in, in an organized fashion and not just receipts in a box and a few, and yep. you know, a couple vague ideas of what happened. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. And, you know, if I, I'm not looking for a specific number here, but how do you structure the charges yeah. for that? Is that a fee-based thing or just like a monthly thing? I do it on a, uh, a monthly flat and I kind of do it on, it's, to me, it may be a little nebulous from what other people do. I mean, some in the, in the music industry, some people are on a 
percentage basis, that's usually more artists, producers, things along those lines where somebody's coming in and taking on a, on a percentage basis. And that falls between usually three to 5%. But I just do it on a flat fee. Some people do it hourly. I hate tracking time. <laughs> so I, uh, I go on a flat fee. I, and I try to come up with something that's fair for the, the, uh, the client and is worth my time and doing it. And so that's, that's easier for me because it's basically, it's a set. We know exactly what we're doing every month. We know what's required for it. And I don't have to track time. (laughs) Do you contribute ideas to your clients as far as how they should do things or advice on, on, on their operations or? I will get as involved as clients want me to be. Okay. Um, it, you know, I, once we've, once we've kind of passed that threshold of operation, you know, structure, insurance, there's not a lot of big, big questions that need to be answered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know for, for studios, um, one of the core things is, is managing cash flow. And I mean, really it's, it's any client is managing cash flow, but studios have a different, a different need than even t- a lot of times what artists do because the the gear acquisition and the upgrades that are sometimes really necessary for studios to remain competitive mm-hmm. and it's hard when you're when you're starting out i mean it it where you got to start you got to have the gear to do the job and whether you're acquiring it or you're renting it depending upon what your needs are and that that all plays into how you are going to either be or not be successful mm-hmm. and survive. Well, I I tell you, man, it's it's um, even attending a school that is is top notch in the music industry. You know, I have always thought it would be great to have a business fundamentals for musicians because you spend so much time learning your craft, and nobody really steps in to say, "Here's how you need to run your business," because without a good basis on how to run your business, you can bang your head against the wall or you're going to end up in tax trouble or you're going to end up absolutely broke and having to gut out, um, you know, everything that you've built up. You know, sometimes the wins are not fair. Sometimes the wins are not good. And, and a lot of people, you know, I was here uh, in Nashville when Pro Tools became the rage. The number of studios that folded in that time frame was astonishing. You know, it was like when when Mars Music came out, and how many how many small music stores collapsed when the when the big boy came on the block, and then what happens? You know, five ten years later, Mars is gone, and now Guitar Center is kind of like the big the big player for the most part, and internet sales. And so, you know, when Pro Tools came around, it's like the the comp- the studios that had just bought their sixty four channel, and I don't know the gear all that well, but you know your sixty four channel Neve consoles that cost $500,000 or something along those lines, they were stuck because they just got gutted by a piece of software that could replace that console. And they weren't in good cash positions because a lot of them were extended on loans for a half million dollars or more to pay off a console that was irrelevant. So it's that's part of you know, being operating a sound business, because if they didn't have a big wad of debt, Mm -hmm. well, they could have survived. 
because they could have then turned around and had the, the business investment on the software piece that would have, you know, complemented their existing infrastructure, their existing uh, asset base that they had there. But when you're trying to, you know, survive competing against the guy who can set up, again, the guy could set up in a bedroom mm -hmm. because you don't need Omni Studios anymore. You don't need Ocean Way. You don't need the rooms now. You can go rent a room and you can track it. And then you can come back and do all the magic at a desktop. And so that's, that's you know, the, the, the fundamental running of the business. And I, I think for, for engineers and such, the, I think maybe sometimes what they lose sight of is that you are the product. You know, you, you are the one that people are coming to see. They want to work with you, not because you have some, oh, he's got X mic or he's got X piece. Now, for example, Sputnik is, is Mitch's unique in, the, in what he has in his gear. You can't get that sound apart from that type of gear. And, but you got to have Mitch be able to run it. And to, so the, you know, people come to you because you are able to, to deliver a final, a final product to them that they want. You know, it's, it's not losing sight of acquiring a gob of gear because I'm supposed to have it. You're the talent. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's like, you're no, you're no different than a specific guitar player or bass player or drummer that you are the creative, you know, you're the one who has the ear and the capability to take all the tracks and put them into a form that works. Do you think too many people rely on trying to sell their clients on what they have versus what they can do? Yes and no, because some people, you know, the consumer can also get wide-eyed about like the bigger, the better. Mm -hmm. When that's not necessarily, you know, this is your industry. I mean, you, you know that people that, that can deliver the goods that, doesn't, that, that, that don't need all of the, the bells and whistles. But then the consumer, the, the artist, the record company, the A&R person coming in and going, they may not really put those two pieces together either. So, you know, it, it's again, you have to have gear. You have to have the proper stuff to work and do your job. But is it because you've got that certain compressor that you're going to get the gig? Probably not. Yeah, I always put an emphasis on just, you know, no matter what it is that you feel helps you do your job, just acquire your tools, learn them well, and uh, make it financially work for you so that you're not overextended. Yeah. And you, you make a really good point there. Learn your tools because the more you know your tools, the more you're going to show yourself to be competent and the more you're going to have efficiency in your time. Because it's the, the longer that that project sits there until the A&R person or the artist is going to hear what the final product is, you know, they're sitting there wringing their hands. And if you're efficient and you can get what you want because you know how to use your tools, you, you set yourself up that much better than your competitors. I've always said that as long as the meal tastes good, nobody cares how it's prepared or cooked. Yep. Yeah. Whether it's an electric stove or a gas stove or whatever. Yeah. Good comparison. What are some of the things that your clients or, or not your clients specifically, but 
uh, people in the music business, whether they be artists or studio owners or engineers or whatever, what are the things that they need to keep an eye out for? What are the things that we typically overlook? And maybe you've seen it time and time again, and you're like, oh, okay, let me let me educate these people. What are, what are buying too much buying too much gear buying too much gear? <laughs> you know, I, it, it because it's a it's a huge expense. It's you're you're acquiring assets, but those assets do they really help you do your job? And if they do, then good, you're you're making a good investment. Other than that, it's just it, it's it's just I'm not a marketing person, but the relationship building is so absolutely critical to being able to stay employed because that's really in the end music is a tough industry to to stay employed in and the ability to build relationships to maintain relationships because if somebody's an artist they want to be able to do their craft as long as they can Mm -hmm. well if if a engineer producer whatnot can develop a relationship with that person such that they they deliver a good product, and, and especially in, in in this market now, where we're not we're not reliant upon the record companies. You know, record companies are are uh, for not entirely, but a lot of ways, going the way of the dodo. And independent artists and independent companies that are even just distribution, where the artist is coming in and doing their own product and getting their own methods of distribution. We don't need labels entirely anymore. You know, you can you can build a pretty good living. And a pretty good roster and a pretty good fan base, depending upon what area you're in, without a label involvement. Because even the label budgets are coming in so lean that some artists themselves are able to, to come up with that kind of a budget. So developing the relationships and the, the contacts and such that you can maintain a regular amount of income. And again, marketing is not my my specialty. There's there's there are people that are, you know, whether um, you know, a uh, producer, something wants to align with a manager who can, can develop those relationships. And I know that's not a very nuts and bolts finance answer for you, but that's, that's a lot of, a lot of it takes care of itself when you've got all that in place, when you've got the relationships and such in place where you've got the consistency of cash flow. If you don't have relationships, you don't have cash flow. You don't have cash flow, you don't have a business. Kurt Andrews here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's take a sponsor break with Audio-Technica for a bit, take a pause. And I want to tell you about the Audio-Technica microphone known as the AT4080. That's a phantom-powered ribbon mic that they make. Fantastic microphone. And I know that because I've tried it. I've tried it on vocals, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, uh, drums. And if you go over to the Working Class Audio website and you scroll over the top navigation bar there, it'll say WCA bonus content. If you click on there, you'll see WCA audio technica mic samples. I've directed you here numerous times in the past, but if you scroll down to, there's a picture of a, uh, of a Fender amp there, and it says Audio Technica 40 series mic samples. You can download vocal samples, acoustic guitar samples, and electric guitar samples of this ribbon mic and check it out. They're at 24 bit, 48K. There's a README PDF to explain what's there, so you can uh, check it all out. But uh, each group, uh, vocals, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, it's all zipped up. So just download the zip file, unzip it, and uh, check it out for yourself. 
Once you check out the samples, I think you'll be convinced it's quite an amazing microphone. You can buy it actually directly on the Audio-Technica website. It is listed at $9.99, or you can go to your local Pro Audio dealer or your favorite online Pro Audio dealer and, and find a slightly different price if you want. But uh, yeah, it's a fantastic mic, and I really uh, encourage you to have a listen and judge for yourself. So that's it. Let's get back to our interview with Mr. Kurt Andrus here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Taxes seems to always be the thing that bites people in, in the in the rear. So what are your thoughts on that, especially with regards to recording professionals? I mean, obviously it can apply to anybody, but you know, specifically recording professionals. Yeah. It's and you know, you're in California land of the taxes. You breathe. They haven't figured out how to tax you yet for your breathing, but they'll <laughs> they'll get around to it. Um, regardless of whatever tax structure you're under is uh, from a federal standpoint. Now we're in Tennessee, we don't have a state income tax here. So we're a little bit better on that. Your business is basically going to be profit and loss. I like to run a business such that I, at the end of the year, make about $12 because that's the business profit. That's what then becomes subject to your state taxes, your business taxes, now there's some business taxes that because and I don't know how California particularly is structured, but you know for for here in Tennessee is you you're paying your business tax generally on your asset base, so you need to anticipate that three percent, two to three percent, you're going to need to kind of just go all right that is going to need I'm going to need to have that for taxes. Take a little bit when you make a, when you do a gig, take a little bit of that, shave off two percent, push it away. From a federal and state standpoint, depending upon well. If you if you're in an S corp, you're required to pay yourself a salary. If you're in an LLC, at least in Tennessee, you can't pay yourself a salary. So that money flows through to you personally. It's still the impact of it from your federal taxes, which are a lot of times where people get in in big trouble, is no different. Because and here's why: is that the when you have an S corp, your company is going to pay. Well, let me even step back one step further. You've got your Social Security and Medicare taxes that are that are everybody's paying them. Whether you pay it as a sole proprietor, LLC, S corp, everybody pays it. Okay. It's just where you pay it is different. If you're in an S corp, when you get a check cut, the company pays the company portion of the the FICA and Medicare, and then you, in your own check, you deduct that portion. Now, LLC and sole proprietor you are the company and you have to pay that full percent there. Now you're going like, well, but I'm the S corp. Yeah, it's it's still the same. It ends up being about 16%, 16, 17% because you're going to have a federal unemployment in there too, that you just got to go S corp, LLC, um, sole proprietor right off the bat is 16% that needs to be set aside. Now you can use a payroll company and they can handle it for you if you're um, the S corp, or you just is a sole proprietor. You just got to figure that's my that is a, a non-negotiable that has to be put aside. Whether you pay it quarterly as a sole proprietor LLC owner um, doesn't matter. Beyond that, then is federal taxes, and that's going to depend upon what your tax rate is, how much money you're making, as to how much you're going to end up paying. As a rule of thumb, I basically let's just say that that you make a hundred thousand, you spend fifty thousand, you got fifty thousand in profit. That's a real straightforward way to look at the equation. Out of that 50, you need to generally set about 30, 30% aside, and that's going to cover your FICA, your Medicare, and your, and your federal income tax. The business taxes, again, that's 2 to 5% that you just need to kind of think in the back of your mind, I'm going to have to pay these taxes. But if you're 
taken 30% of that, that profit and setting it aside, generally you should be okay. And as a sole proprietor or LLC owner, that's going to be paid in quarterly. So comes, you know, April 15th is your first quarter, June, June 15th. I can't remember the exact payment dates right off the top of my head, but you're paying in quarterly. So you just take the, the money you set aside and it really boils down to, it's like, okay, I got a gig this month. I've got 5,000 left in the account and I'm, I'm in good shape for next month. I've got, you know, um, and I'll circle around to one other point of managing cash flow. Take two grand of it, stick it in a savings account. Well, that means I only got three grand to work with. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you do. Yep. Yes, you do. And you're going to have to manage your household and your your living expenses personally on that what's left. That's that's how to keep your tail end out of difficulty with the IRS. The one thing also on managing cash flow you're asking on on things that people need to be aware of is having a reserve that you can I like I feel kind of comfortable if I can get about a 6 month reserve set aside and that is basically your your rent, your utilities, your operating expenses just because cash flow in the music industry is very very difficult. And it's like, wow, that's just I can't manage that. Well, if you want to survive, it it that's a goal to shoot for. Now is it like, oh my gosh, I don't have 6 months set aside. I'm I'm worthless. Well, no. No, it's just that's the goal to set aside to try to accomplish. And so many of those things interact with with how what you do personally and what your own personal expenses are. So, but having enough cash set aside that you can operate your business and it's going to make life a whole lot more comfortable personally. And if you've got a family, you know, your significant other will be much happier when you're not going, I don't know, honey, I don't know how we're going to make it this month. Yeah. It's interesting because when you do get money and it's been a dry time, there's always a rush to pay off. Well, I got to pay this and I got to pay that just to play catch up. So, you know, that's when I think we as recording professionals need to be realistic about, you know, okay, well, can I do this full time or do I need uh, to not only, you know, do I need to diversify and do other things or do, do I need to get a side day job, part-time job, full-time job, whatever to kind of get to a point where I do have that reserve built up. It it just makes life a lot easier when you're not ring in your hands, your panic factor doesn't set in and making sure that those taxes are set aside because that will shut you down. That will, the IRS, when they really get pissy, can make your life very unpleasant. If it gets bad enough, they can come in and seize all your assets and you're done. That, and it, it and it's also, I think, important, and, and I'm sure that you would agree that if, let's say you do get to the end of the year and you're presented with a big federal, you know, a tax bill from the IRS, um, it's very important to not hide and ignore. It's best to reach out to them, get them on the phone and say, hey, uh, I can't pay this all at once. If you communicate yep. with the IRS, they can be very friendly. You are absolutely right. I've been in many circumstances with different types of business. That, that is exactly correct. That you can, you if you engage them, they will work with you. If you don't, they will they will get your attention somehow. And if that getting your attention means that they take all your gear and sell it off for pennies on a dollar, that's fine. They'll do that. But and that's a long way down the road. I mean, they're going to, you know, this this thing like, oh, the IRS man just came and knocked on my door and has taken all my gear. 
No, no, no. They've been sending you a lot of letters for a long time trying to get your attention and you just have been ignoring them. So you're right on the mark. It's just don't pretend it doesn't exist because it, it overwhelms you emotionally. It's get in there, make the calls. They're happy to talk with you. Yep. And, you know, they're a lot nicer than than a credit card company, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, I, and I do want to talk about that briefly before we wrap up. But I will say this. I, I've been in the situation where I've got to the end of the year and, you know, there's a big IRS bill. And rather than run and hide, I have, as you said, engaged them and got them on the phone and said, hey, I got your bill. No problem. Can we work out a payment plan? They're like, yeah, no problem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, can we do this? Well, no. Okay, well, how about we try this then? You know, let's. how about this amount per month? And, um, you know, pay, pay a little more if you can. And uh, yeah, it's, once you do that, the stress level just gets wiped off the table, because you know that you've made a deal that is structured. Emotion can be a real great driver, or it can be a really nasty uh, slave master. And that's where not being overwhelmed by the money side and not being overwhelmed by the emotion of money is very beneficial in stripping away a lot of its 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 power to because it'll uh, it just it can be paralyzing you know and dealing with the IRS it can be absolutely paralyzing because there's fear that goes along with it when you strip away the fear it can really free you up to to be able to operate more comfortably and not and then, because a lot of times I mean I God bless creatives because you guys hear no more than I could ever handle. I'm just, I'm, I'm comfortable in the, I've got my client base, but I don't have to go out and constantly get new clients to keep my monthly cash flow going. You guys have a much stronger backbone than you will ever give, probably give yourselves credit for because of the fact that you're always trying to deal with, with gaining new clientele and just taking a, taking a side uh, side trail to kind of go dealing with the money is easy uh, from a, an emotional perspective for me, but it's stripping that fear out of it and and knowing that you've got the power to basically do small things and free that emotional energy up for your art. Does that, does that make sense? I don't know if that no, kind it of, totally does. It it does. Like a little esoteric, <laughs> but you know, I w just to give credit where credit's due. Uh, my my memory of your you as a player, you are a fantastic bass player. Thank you. So it's not like this is completely foreign to you and you don't have any hand in it. You have had a hand in it, and therefore I think yeah. maybe that's why you understand it. So I do want to come around to debt. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Obviously, credit card debt is is a demon that just <laughs> never goes away if yeah. if you if you stay scared of it. We mentioned earlier that, you know, the IRS is actually a lot easier to deal with than credit card companies. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on debt and, and what's the best way forward for those in debt who are having a tough time climbing out? I'll take it from a couple different angles. There's, there's the mechanics. Again, a lot, of, a lot of dealing with money really does have a lot more to do with emotion than it does with mechanics. And I'll, I'll make the comparison that there are people who can play really, really, really well, and they are as dry as a desert. There's no, there's no emotion in it. It's all mechanics. So emotion can be a great driver, and when you get a hold of it as far as for how you're dealing with money is a great thing. So the debt can feel like it's this, this huge burden. How am I, oh, my God, how am I ever going to get out of it? Well, you brought up a really good point earlier of 
well, maybe it's going to require that you're going to have to to take some supplemental income if um, you know if you're there. Because I'm not going to pretend that like everybody's in this great situation where like, oh, I'm just starting out and all this money is going to be great. A lot of acquiring your gear is going to require you to go into debt. Not require, but it's much more frequently than not. It's kind of the way you have to go. Mm-hmm. And and with the the cash flow, it's even sometimes where it's like. I got to pay this off. Now you got to survive next month too. And if you don't have your calendar booked for the next two, three months, you got to figure out how you're going to make it through next month. So managing that cash flow is also going to help you eradicate your debt because you're not going to panic and not be able to pay for something else, not be able to pay for that studio time that you need. Because the credit cards honestly can sit. When you can't pay for, you know, someone invoices you for uh, a gear repair or uh, renting a room or renting a piece of gear for something and you can't pay that, that'll, you'll, you will cease to exist um, because you can, no one is going to give you that credit any longer to manage or to, to get what you need to function. I can't really solve the problem of income and expense because so much of, of eradicating debt as an income part of the equation as opposed to it being a the debt in and of itself mm-hmm. so and a lot of this stuff honestly is is in your rooming situations i mean if someone is is a single adult can you put another roommate into your place well how much is that going to affect your monthly cash flow of what you personally need to draw off your company that could be seven eight hundred dollars is it is it a you know it's always thinking outside of the box in order to try to eradicate a debt load that's there when the income in and of itself isn't enough to hit to make that happen taking that supplemental job well i don't have time you got time to sit and fart around on facebook you got time to go get a job (laughs) yeah it's it's looking at the time sucks and going well you know how much time do you need to do your job to track to to get the you know for the recording industry how much time do you need to do and sometimes it is it is nonstop. okay i don't i don't have the solution for it if if the, the the I, I, I don't have time to go do anything else. Well, you're probably not charging enough for your time. And I know it's, it's well, but then I'm not going to get the gig. I, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question for you. So in, again, I know I'm not really kind of giving an easy answer for how do you get out of debt. The way you get out of debt is you make more money because it's, you, you look at it this way, is if you had more money built up ahead of time, and could pay for your gear in cash, you're, you're eliminating the interest expense of operating your business. Mm-hmm. And on a credit card, depending upon where you're at, that's 15 to 28%. That's a lot of money. And if you can try to avoid that, getting into that debt to start with is how much more cash then do you have to operate your business? Because when you spend so much money on trying to eradicate debt, that's that's your cash flow. Mm-hmm. You're you got that much of your cash flow that's just being taken away by paying somebody else for loaning that money. And and there's a lot of other things. I mean, it, it, when you get creative and thinking about it, it's kind of like, well, maybe who's got a deep pocket that might be able to help me that believes in me that I can kind of scratch their back in maybe helping me get out of ten thousand dollars of credit card credit card debt. Can I swap out time for them doing? You know, what about a uh, a dentist office that you might know a dentist that that's he's got some pretty deep pockets and saying, I will be happy to do all sorts of of um, spots for you that you could use for your business that you could put up on your website. I can do the audio side of it. Uh, and I got a buddy who does some video work. We can do some some little uh, um, 
even like you're doing podcasts, blogs, things like that, that you just, it's almost thinking outside of the box to say, what can I, how can I use my, my skill set beyond just recording a band? Exactly. Exactly. Um, commercials. I mean, that's, God, there's so much money in commercials, you know? I mean, it's, it's no, uh, a lot of people don't, don't consider it is that Nashville, Nashville is, is a big center of music beds for commercials and commercial recording and voiceovers and things like that. It's, it's kind of a, when you, when you start shifting your paradigm a little bit to say, okay, I have recording gear. I know how to record. Well, what all can be recorded? What all, what all can I do with my gear? Because your, your gear is your primary asset beyond, beyond physically you, Mm -hmm. your gear is an asset. And I'll make a comparison. It's like Southwest airlines. They, they fly their planes as much as they can. They, their turnaround time on the ground is usually about 45 minutes. They land that plane, they dump people off, they put people on and they get it right back in the air. Because the more time that that asset is in the air, the more money they make with that asset. So the more that your gear is, is being used for money making purposes, the more money you're making. The more the more that asset is 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 functioning for you to make you money, and that even goes beyond of kind of like, well, what about another upcoming engineer or somebody that 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 needs to use the gear? Well, can I rent him my gear and make five hundred bucks? Well, my bet would be five hundred bucks would probably take care of a loan payment or a couple months worth of a credit card payment just to help make it a little further. The other thing too that I always think of is, uh, you know, kind of like. Facing, as we talked about earlier, about engaging with the IRS, the other thing I think that a lot of us don't do is we don't engage with our own finances. We don't track what we're doing. We ignore it and hope it will get better. And the only uh, engagement I, I've known, and I've done this in the past, I don't do this anymore, but many people, the only engagement they have is going to the ATM to check the balance or logging on to their bank account to check their balance and going, Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God, I'm overdrawn. Um, yeah. And that's, that's not healthy. I think if, you know, as if you as you say, take the emotion out of it, engage. Uh, one of the things that I do that I always encourage people to check out is this uh, is mint.com. And Mint basically just takes all of your account information from all of your various accounts, puts it in one easy to use user interface for you to examine, oh, I'm, you know, I'm paying this much interest on this credit card and my credit score is this. And, and I think in addition to engaging with one's money, I think that we also tend to get a little cavalier with some of our expenses like cell phones, for example. Do you really need the, you know, all you can eat plan? You know, not necessarily. Um, How many years ago did we have a phone that you went, hello? Oh, yeah. How's what I'm doing? Yeah. And, you know, oh, and now I can now I can punch numbers into it. Now I can punch text into it. And now it's like, you know, no, granted, it's it's a tool, mm -hmm. you know. It is, it's, but you're right. I mean, it's, you're the, if I'm understanding the point you're getting at is that, that, is it functional? Am I losing business because I don't go this way? Um, do I need the next generation Mac? Is it absolutely necessary that I get this upgrade for the Pro Tool system mm -hmm. or whatever software? Is it absolutely necessary to have that? I mean, I run QuickBooks. I run QuickBooks Pro. That's everything that I use. It's a great program. It's fairly simple to use. It's not for everybody because some people are love technology and and 
I, I know I can put the data in and get the data out that I need. I don't even do downloads. I don't, I don't download a bank statement because I have to then go back and the program, I don't want the program thinking for me. So I'd rather just do the data entry because it saves it for me, it saves me time. But exactly the direction you're going is that there, there are programs out there that can help either QuickBooks or Mint or there's some other, I'm sure there's, there's several others I've not researched them to find out that can just help you take everything in, know where you're at and make it simpler than just a, or at least a little more functional than just a box of receipts and your ATM balance. <laughs> exactly. You know, ever since closing my last studio, I, uh, I basically kind of went back and just examined, okay, well, I don't need, you know, the unlimited plan with this cell phone company. So I found a cell phone company with a plan that basically my phone bill on the average is about $15 a month. Ooh. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and that was, that was coming down, you know, first I got, I was at 80 a month and it was at 50 a month. And then I was like, well, okay, I can't get T-Mobile to budge. So I'm going to go to this other company and here's what I'm going to do. And I, you know, I have an Android smartphone that I could check my email and text and all that. So it's just a matter of really being, I think, thinking outside the box and really getting strategic about it. If it's important, I think for us to you know, continue to do audio and you don't want to get a job, you've got to make some sacrifices in some areas. It's, it is, again, it is a, it really got brutal with the collapse of the record industry. It, it, the whole, the, the paradigm shift from albums being produced. And I'm, I don't have the crystal ball, but I think what's going to end up happening is that, that the, the music industry as a whole is going to start shifting back towards the 50s and 60s where it was exclusively single driven you know you see you know even even today is like peter gabriel released uh, a song called the veil which is on a the oliver stone soundtrack for snowden um here's a song it's not going to be albums you know now the independent artists i think will always do albums because that's it and and songwriter driven because the contracts are still structured in such a way that, you know, the 10 song, the you need to have that 75% artist written to be able to participate in the, 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 the full royalties. And so I think that the contracts, until they change, but even the record companies are looking at it from the standpoint of going, damn, this is still expensive. And, uh, you know, you watch the, you know, the, the staffs at the various labels are dramatically less than what they used to be. And it's a fallout of just where the income stream is. And it starts at the consumer level. But um, the recording, you know, and that's the that's the doom and gloom side of it. But the really cool side of it is that there are more artists out there now than were there in the 80s, you know, because record companies controlled the 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 airwaves, the recording process for the most part, because the album budgets were big. I mean, even for going for for Emmett, I mean, it's it's not a lot of people had the budget to go plop down the kind of money to do their own project. But now again, the, the revel the revolution of, of the, the, uh, the gear has made it different that it's the cost effectiveness for an independent artist. I just, I chuckle sometimes cause I go on YouTube and I'm going, and I, I, I still try to keep up with, with new music. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of our peers probably just kind of, you know, they still love their journey album and that's, that's fine. <laughs> but you know, I, and I, it's still for me, it's a cacophony. I look at, you know, who's a Coachella. I never heard of them. You know, it's like Bonnaroo. I don't, 
I look at the, the, the listing on Bonnaroo, I don't have the foggiest idea who 90% of the acts on Bonnaroo's list is every year. Yeah. And, th but that's a good, good thing for the industry as a whole. And it's a good thing for the recording side. Again, if you develop those relationships, because there's a lot more artists trying to compete in the cacophony that still need a product that is better than the eight track recorder. Here's kind of my final thought that I want to, I want to spit out. Um, and then we need to wrap it up. But I think that for a lot of people, a lot of recording professionals, they have a narrative that they want to follow. And that narrative is they want to be the, the guy in the magazine doing the big bands and all that. But when the narrative starts to take a side, you know, uh, take a detour, some people are hesitant to, well, I don't know, man. I mean, I record bands. I can't go record voiceovers or I can't, you know, I can't record, I can't clean a audio from so-and-so's cassette tape or, you know, people are, are have blinders on to the point where, They'd rather live the narrative at the cost of financial suffering than, you know, change the narrative so that they are surviving. I mean, you look at you look at musicians in Nashville. I will guarantee you that probably at least 70 to 80 percent of the top studio musicians in Nashville, they're jazz guys. They're Berkeley. They're Juilliard. They're uh, North Texas. Well trained. They're they are. And they're jazz guys. The funny thing is, is that around here, when the studio guys go have fun, they're doing tribute bands like Steely Dan tribute bands and and the the long play. I mean, even Vince Gill has the Time Jumpers, which is a uh, you know Western swing bluegrass. Uh, some guys have a band called Here Come the Mummies, which they all dress up in mummy costumes and play very sexually oriented funk music. <laughs> But it is, uh, there's another thing called Three Ring Circle, which is Dave Pomeroy, top level bass player in town, a couple other guys that do this bluegrass jazz fusion. They're all phenomenally talented. But what do they do to make their money? Doom, 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 doom. It's, it's mind numbing for them, but it's the gig. They make money, they survive. And it's not just, wow, I'm the one who's playing for Carrie Underwood. I'm the one who's playing for Taylor Swift. You're, you're, you're just taking the gigs. Right. And when you, when you think outside the box, and the cool thing is if we're recording, think of everything that has to be recorded. It's astonishing. Everything that has to have the audio tuned properly, not tuning, like vocal tuning, but, you know, has to be mixed properly. Right. And, and going how much more effective can you be if, if you can, again, like you think, think outside the box to go, how much more can I do with this skill set and with this asset base? Because if you survive and you develop the relationships and there are so few people and there's so few big bands that are, I mean, it's like, look at Shellback and, and um, Max Martin the the pop genre right now is they are the go-tos you look at their their laundry list of of who they work with it's the record companies who know if i go to shellback and max martin and the other guys that are out there we're going to have a hit and we're going to get our money out of it they're not spreading that love around 
And so getting that big band, it's, it's, you just happen to get lucky and then you develop a relationship and somebody thinks you're, you're pretty, pretty smoking. Um, because that's, you're, you're dealing with an aesthetic, uh, you're dealing with art and it's subjective. So you can be the most talented engineer on the planet and you can have the best gear possible, but if you're a dick, <laughs> whatever, yeah, they don't care. They don't care. You know, you don't develop the relationships. I, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show. No worries, man. This has been great information. So it's good to see you. And uh, thanks again. Cool. Take care. You too. We'll see you later. Mm, bye-bye. Kurt Andrus here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. A little bit different from what we normally do in terms of uh, having an audio professional on. I figured a financial professional would also be of benefit to us all. So uh, hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. But uh, we are out of time, and we want to thank everybody. So uh, let's start with our friend Cliff Truesdale. Let's thank Cliff. And, of course, let's thank Chuck Smith and Cole Williams. And then let's thank our sponsors, Lawton Audio, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Gearsluts.com. And thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.